Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is a broking pioneer with a very clear vision and an even clearer plan for how to achieve that vision. Steve McGill founded McGill & Partners almost four years ago and first appeared on this podcast about a year into the firm's existence. It's been over two years since he last came on the show. Two years is a long time for anyone, but for a startup business less than four years old, it's practically a lifetime. In two years, the Steve on this podcast hasn't changed a bit, but the global business he runs has really taken shape. With revenues exceeding $170 million and the core build-out of the firm's global infrastructure largely complete, the focus is unrelentingly on continuing and trying to accelerate growth from here on. Steve remains hugely focused, and the strategy and vision remains the same from day one acquire talent and customers, not businesses, and stay narrow and deep in specialisms while avoiding head-on competition with the biggest global generalist brokers. In this podcast, we take stock of how far the firm has come in a short period of time, against a backdrop of broking upheaval caused by M&A and attempted M&A, a global pandemic, and major armed conflict. We also get insights into the transformed reinsurance landscape, the revolution in insurance distribution through the hybrid carrier and MGA incubator phenomenon, and the logical consequences of increased digitization on the market from one of the finest strategic broking minds in the business. This one's not to be missed. Enjoy the podcast. Steve, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you, Mark. It's been a couple of years, which obviously years are years, but in McGill years, that's a lot. That's a large percentage of your lifespan since we last spoke. So Let's check in with the numbers and how you've been doing. Well, it was June 2020 when we last talked, and that was our first full year of trading. And now nearly getting towards three years on and having gone through our third full year of trading, first of all, I couldn't be more proud of where we are today, what we've accomplished as a team. And it's really exciting to be positioned as the fastest growing global specialty broking firm in the world. And when I sort of look back at the dark days of a global pandemic, and, and I sort of reflect on, first of all, starting a new business, putting together all the plans, which the planning for the business was extensive. It was over a two-year period before we soft launched on the 1st of October 2019, and then we went into 2020. And frankly, all the planning we had done couldn't really countenance a global pandemic. And in fact, when we spoke in June of 2020 on the podcast, I made the reference We'd actually ripped up our original business plan. I think I ended up putting it on the title of the podcast as rip up your original business plan. And whilst we ripped it up... The progress and the momentum and what we'd achieved was absolutely extraordinary and in many levels reflected progress that was not inconsistent with the original business plan. And when I look at it now and reflecting on it, 2022 was our third full year of trading. 2020 and 2021, I would say, we were still navigating through a global pandemic. You get into 2022, you have the Russia and Ukraine war that kicks off in late February. And then you have all the sort of macroeconomic and geopolitical implications 
of that and all the second and third order effects of all of that. And we had business coming out of Russia, like a number of our peers. And I sort of look back and say, we've achieved so much under such extraordinary circumstances. And in our second full year of trading, being 2021, right in the midst of the pandemic, to have organically built a business and gone through 100 million US dollars of revenue organically from a standing start, not only is it extraordinary, but it's unprecedented in this industry. And I look around at many fine firms. Miller's, for example, is an exceptional firm, very high quality firm. It took them 110 years to reach 100 million pounds of revenue. And so I kind of look at that and say, yeah, we are building something extraordinary. And it's been resonating with clients. We've had fantastic support from carriers. And the momentum has just continued. You know, in 2022, we are still finalizing our reports and accounts. But what I can say is organic revenue growth of 40% in 2022 is industry leading. And we sit here today in early April, and the first quarter has gone behind us. And the momentum, again, is very high, double-digit growth in revenue. And not only have we been thoughtfully growing the revenue, but we've built a global business. And most of that was done during a pandemic. So they have centers of excellence in London, Dublin, Bermuda, and New York with satellite offices also in Miami, Sydney, Australia, Zurich, which we've just opened. I look at what we've done, what we've achieved, the heavy lifting that goes into starting a new business. And then I look at startups that started just prior to the pandemic and look at where they are today. And again, I think we're in a pretty unique position in our own industry. As I said, we're proud of what we've accomplished, being the fastest growing specialty broker in the world. But actually, when you read across to financial services more broadly, or the business world more broadly, there aren't many firms that started just before a global pandemic and have come out of it with such incredible momentum, incredible growth, and a really exciting future ahead of it. And to put this 40% in context, 21, it was about 120 plus? 21 was 120, and 22 would have been about $170 million. And then that momentum still continuing, so we should expect more for 23. I'd um, be disappointed if it was less, I tell you that. And I suppose one other factor you forgot about that might have wrong-footed the market, I suppose it should have given you a tailwind, was that Aon Willis, it's on, it's off. Also, that can't have possibly been in your original planning. But what about the pandemic? Did it make it harder to win new business? Certainly, that's been the emerging consensus, made it easier for incumbents to keep their accounts. I think you probably have to say that that can't necessarily be true because you probably doubled in size during the pandemic. So I would say, like with anything you do, you need a bit of luck. And I, I think where the luck came in for us was that the insurance market was hardening in 2020, and it meant that clients that might otherwise be saying, you know what, I, I've got more important things to focus on right now, and let's not look at alternatives. Because the market was challenging, and because 
the entire industry had to pivot and work remotely. And certain firms that had legacy systems and legacy technology were not as sort of fleet of foot, so to speak. It was almost legacy culture, wasn't it, really? Yeah. More than anything else. It was a legacy culture, and it created really interesting opportunities for us. And one of our biggest clients that we're proud to represent today, which is one of the biggest companies of its type in the world, actually reached out to us just before we did the podcast in June of 2020. They reached out to us via LinkedIn, (laughs) and we connected with them. And within a month, we had a major appointment off one of the big three broking firms, and and it's expanded dramatically since that appointment. I'm totally with you on LinkedIn. No one know anything about this podcast if it wasn't for LinkedIn, so I'm absolutely with you on that one. Yeah, and I suppose there's nothing like first renewal quote to make you think, right, I better start shopping around. I suppose that's the other point, isn't it? I think there's that. There's also the strategy around the renewals, typically for the more sophisticated clients, start quite early. And if there are concerns about what the market may be doing, clients will look for an alternative. And we've really focused on, as you know, our business is talent-focused. We've been concentrating on getting best-in-class talent, but we've also specialized, and we're proud of not only what we do, but what we don't do. And clients recognize the talent that we have, and we're proactively coming to us during 2020 in ways that surprised us, positive ways, and we were picking up incredible opportunities during those challenging times. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision-makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com, and I'll do everything I can to get you started. I suppose, yes, no battle plan survives the first shots of war, but you're happy with progress. If someone said to you, you'd be here now, you know, three years' time, we'd just say, well, I'll settle for that. Okay, but I wish it was more, but are you happy with where you are in terms of how you've proceeded? I'm not happy. I'm ecstatic. I I think... (laughs) Try and find another business in the world outside of tech that has achieved what we've done through a global pandemic, that has achieved the level of growth that we've achieved, that has built a global business and attracted an unbelievable cross-section of of talent with significant positive momentum. I think it'll be difficult to find that sort of firm. And, And not only that, Mark, we have a who's who of some of the most high-profile global clients in the world in our portfolio now. One of the clients is in the top five largest companies in the world by market cap. Two of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world are clients of ours. One of the largest investment banks in the world, one of the largest top three food manufacturing companies in the world is a client of ours. One of the top three clients by market cap in the whole of Europe is a client of ours. Two of the top three offshore renewable companies are clients of ours. And I can go on and on and on. 
And I have to say, when I looked at the business plan in 2019 before we launched the business, I had real hopes that we'd be able to attract high-profile clients, and I'm particularly pleased and thrilled that we've actually got a roster of clients that is not only high-profile, but significantly continuing to grow. The pipeline we have of high-profile client opportunities is significant in 2023, and we'll be winning more very high-profile names. So if anyone says, are you off plan or off course, what would you say to them? You'd say, well, we're doing incredibly well, so what would it matter? I'd say to anybody, 40% organic revenue growth in this market in 2022 is phenomenal. Continued high double-digit growth is phenomenal. You can't always plan for every eventuality. You can't plan for a global pandemic. You can't plan for a Russia-Ukraine war. You can't plan for deal-making in M&A slowing down dramatically, and we've got real expertise in the sort of reps and warranty space. You can't plan for any of that. But what you can look at, and when you step back and look at it, is a really unbelievable success story that I'm incredibly proud of, and a success story that I think is highly respectful of the industry that we're in, of the competition that we face, and the clients that we serve. Spence coming on for four years. Have you built the machine now in terms of, have you got all the parts that you feel you need? I presume this is a process that probably never really ends, but in terms of that original plan, have you sort of ticked all the boxes of what you felt you needed to build in terms of infrastructure and people? Pretty much, Mark. We've ticked all the boxes. We've actually stayed very focused and disciplined around continuing to commit to being a specialist firm as opposed to broadening our capabilities and becoming more generalist because our view was when you look at the landscape and you look at the competition and you look at outstanding firms like Marsh and Aon and Willis Towers Watson, to compete against organizations like that with their vast array of services and capabilities, we felt we shouldn't be a smaller version of those firms. And we should not be generalists and we should go narrow and deep and focus on specialization. And that has served us so incredibly well. You know, it's pretty common for firms in this industry to go after and participate in RFPs all the time. You know, any opportunity that comes up, let's try and do it. We've only participated in 72 RFPs since we launched the firm in aggregate over that period of time, and our hit rate's 50%. And so it goes back to really stay focused, stay true to the sort of values and the approach and the philosophy that we have, which is clients will value distinctive service and will value skills and capabilities and will deal with colleagues who've got deep subject matter expertise. And I think from our standpoint, we have the ability to be quite selective in what we do and how we do it. So I suppose during this period of market turmoil, in many ways, there were lots of different opportunities that threw themselves up that sort of quite shiny and and attractive, but then you had to keep stopping yourself and pinching yourself saying, well, are these things you can go narrow and deep into or they or they too generalist? Is that Yes, as I say, we're very focused on staying true to the mission 
and we've had the opportunities even to pivot and there's this particular firm that's up for sale or that wants to do a deal and we've basically said we have a plan it's ambitious it's around acquisition at scale but it's talent acquisition that was one of my later questions that's still definitely off the menu you're building organically you're going to take people not necessarily companies well mark why would it be on the menu if talent acquisition for us has been such a success yeah i suppose you'd have to buy whole companies if people weren't joining Correct. And 503 colleagues later, with a strong pipeline of talent, we feel we've got a recipe and a colleague value proposition that attracts talent. And we're certainly not complacent about it. It's a competitive world. Well, obviously, it, talent does come and it does also walk out the door. I suppose the saying is you know, your talent goes to bed at night and you want to make sure they come back in the morning. That's why I said you should never be complacent. And it's either with talent or with serving clients. So yes, well, if you ever do any M&A in the future now, Steve, I'll have to pull you back and say, well, you know, a few years ago, you said you probably would never do it, but you'd never say never, I presume, but maybe there are other firms out there that are narrow and deep and with excellent expertise that is complementary, that probably wouldn't necessarily be for sale, but might want to merge, for example, that kind of thing in a certain, uh, more as a sort of merger of equals type thing with another firm that you particularly admired, I and mean, that might work. You could never say never to anything, and I believe I raised this at the previous podcast we had. But our case study for setting up the firm was the case study around investment banking and the emergence of global super boutiques and investment banking. You may remember that. And, And it drew the comparison actually very nicely around there are three big global investment banks being Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan Chase, and Morgan Stanley. There are a lot of smaller investment banks that are more regionally focused, more middle market focused. But then you have the emergence of global super boutiques in banking, firms like Evercore, that are very well known in this industry, Molis and others. They took a large share out of the worldwide investment banking revenues, admittedly over a sort of 20 plus year period. But when I look at a firm like Evercore, which is a superb firm, you know, they were founded in 1995, and but for one or two very, very small acquisitions, they've grown organically with talent, you know, and today they have over 2,000 colleagues and I think over $2.1 billion of revenue. And so we kind of look at that runway and say, that's a really interesting model. We're trying to do the equivalent on the insurance and reinsurance broking side. There's a lot of runway. And to my mind, the next big hallmark, which will be in a period of time measured in seven to 10 years, is going through a billion dollars of revenue. And that can be achieved through organic growth, just like it has been in investment banking. Presumably, you won't be able to get a million dollars of revenue per employee like they do, but presumably you can only dream of that within the insurance space. But Well, again, I don't want to go into our numbers, <laughs> but our revenue per broker is pretty much industry leading at this state. And it will continue to be industry leading as we move forward. I suppose as the business starts to mature, are you starting to get a better balance? Obviously, because by definition, a startup business, it will be in balance as your first account will be over here and in one sector. And, and as you build out, are you getting a better balance of geography and, yeah, and by line as well? Geography, the most important geography for us is the United States. And there we've got a twin track strategy, which is working really well, where we are working closely with selected 
high-quality retail brokers in the States yep. to support them with our placement capabilities to serve complex clients. And also separately, dealing with some of the biggest customers in the world that are mainly the province of the big three broking firms. And that strategy is working well, but over 45% of our revenue would emanate from the United States through those channels. I suppose that seems probably a fair balance because that's in line with its world market share of insurance revenues. Absolutely. It's kind of what we expected, to be honest. I also think what is really good to see is the diversification of our portfolio across direct corporate clients, across our wholesale business, and across our reinsurance business, both facultative and treaty, which is also doing unbelievably well. One last thing, you know, when we're talking about Miguel & Partners, the business, there was a mention in a report that you should be coming cash flow positive. And that's, you know, in any startup business, that's a good moment. Is that going to happen? I saw a mention of another term, and we're all learning startup businesses have a particular vocabulary around their accounts. Another term was contribution positive, and I don't really know the difference between one and the other. Well, I would say the measure we look at is underlying profitability. And again, I don't want to go into numbers, but we achieved that in a material way in 2022, in our third year of operating. As we look out to the future, it's not going to be long before we're in the position of being cash flow positive. But I would qualify that because that's not necessarily the most important thing. If there are opportunities to continue to build a firm with talent acquisition in a significant way, we're going to keep driving the business forward. So you think growth far more important than profitability at this stage because that's just not a material question. No, growth is important. Underlying profitability and profitability is, you'll get is important. You know you're going to get there. Yeah. But if you have the chance to grow faster, you'll grow faster rather than delay everything so you can become profitable. We're not going to take short-term decisions that mean that in the medium and longer term, the actual business is not what it could or should be. And the beauty of being private and having a fantastic partner in Warburg Pincus is we've got that luxury. And by the way, again, not wanting to go into specifics, we've got a lot of capital still not deployed that we can use because the capital deployment has been so effective and efficient for us over the last three years. You know, obviously, we've got the slightly, you know, the wind of capital is blowing more sparsely than it was before. You're not like some of these insure techs or more highly levered brokers that have to be focusing more on keeping the cash there than they would have been otherwise. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about retaining cash or, you know, no. generating cash. No, we're in a very fortunate position. And I have to say, we're not on the back foot, we're on the front foot, massively on the front foot, and it's exciting. The competitive landscape's transformed, and it always surprises me. You know, I've spent a lot of my life writing about and looking at the competitive landscape, particularly here in the London market, and, and, but in the global specialty markets. I mean, it seems to have consolidated even more than I would have expected it to. Was that in your plan in terms of, obviously, there's the plan of the things that you can do, but there's also a plan of your expectation of what might be happening out in that wider competitive landscape. Did it take you by surprise that we've had this sort of extra final, it always feels like the final wave, but it never seems to actually be the final wave of this consolidation of the second and third tier? No, it didn't take us by surprise. And it was part of the investment thesis and the plans was that there would be a lot of 
M&A activity, and it would open up opportunities. And even though the M&A activity in 2022, just generally in the world, and specifically in insurance and reinsurance broking was down, there was still some pretty interesting developments. And I think as you look over the next two years, I think there's going to be a significant amount of continued M&A activity, continued structural change in the industry. And I think that's going to continue to open up really interesting opportunities for us. So it's again about being an alternative home, an attractive home for some of that talent that's obviously going to get displaced whenever you smash two breaking businesses together. Correct. And talent that actually is talent in specialist areas of expertise and talent that is basically interested in joining a firm like ours. We have what we call a no-jerk culture, and we operate across the firm as a single profit center where teamwork is really reinforced, and teamwork is a significant differentiator across the whole firm, across insurance and reinsurance. It drives results that delivers for clients outcomes that, in many cases, they don't expect. So I've just had Andrew Horton on the show. He was saying that what he's been doing at QBEs, not just remunerating people based on what their silo is doing, a big element of people's bonuses now are to do with how they've behaved as a group member and interacting with other parts of the organization, obviously, which is a, for them is a global organization. Do you have that element of that's the way that you incentivize people in your business? Andrew's doing a great job repositioning QBE, and, and I wish him well. But QBE is a legacy business that has been subject to hundreds of acquisitions, yep. and he's having to reposition the firm for success. When you start as a brand new firm with a blank sheet of paper, you set your own tone and you set your own expectations, and you really define the ingredients that are important for a successful business. And from our standpoint, we basically set out our stall by saying, first of all, we want every single person in the firm, directly or indirectly, to be shareholders. So that creates an alignment of interest, which in itself is pretty unique in the industry. Secondly, everybody gets and qualifies for a discretionary bonus in the firm. And it's based on a number of factors, but it isn't siloed where you just look at it by the performance in a particular business unit. And thirdly, we've developed what we call our contract of trust, which was developed before COVID. And that's designed, again, to give our colleagues flexibility to work in ways that are pretty unique. And we have progressive maternity, I think the most progressive maternity and paternity leave arrangements that exist in the industry. So we have a colleague value proposition that is really important, not only to attract talent, not only to retain talent, but to actually deliver excellence to our clients. What about on the reinsurance side? That's been another thing that probably you wouldn't have been able to legislate for when you were sitting planning, you know, in that 2017 to 2019 period. A starting pistol was fired on investment in that by challenger reinsurance brokers. And I say you have to be one of those. What's the verdict now? That whole market was thrown up in the air and it's now landed. Do you think you've made inroads into those spaces, presumably as a specialist? Yeah. I mean, have we made inroads? Absolutely. I think our facultative reinsurance team are recognized as global leaders in the fact reinsurance space. And 
absolutely can go up against the other major competitors and win without any difficulty. When you look at a treaty, it is a bit more nuanced because you've got Aon and Guy Carpenter and now Gallagher Re, who are phenomenal firms who've invested hundreds of millions, if not billions, in data and analytics. And the way we are competing against those firms is being very specialist, being very niche, narrow and deep. The investment banking analogy is alive and well in reinsurance. And our treaty teams are doing incredibly well in ways that are almost under the radar, discreet, but the growth in both treaty and FAC is phenomenal. And these presumably, these are correlating to your insurance specialisms? As well. I mean, our reinsurance expertise that is being introduced to large corporate clients as part of our one-team approach is hugely differentiating. So you're giving them access to markets that they wouldn't normally have access directly? Absolutely. Right. And then they suddenly have a different level of conversation. Correct. And it's very difficult with the great respect of some of our competitors to replicate what we are doing. We've had a hard market. We've had a hard insurance market. You're born into that hardening. And then we've now had the reinsurance tail gave the dog a good wag at 1-1. How's that affected things? Obviously, presumably it's just been quite helpful. It can only be helpful as a startup broker when insurance premiums are rising in general and now given a second win because of increased reinsurance costs. John Neal, in releasing the Lloyd's results, which obviously were excellent for 2022, talked about the number of quarters that there's been a hard market, and it was 20. Yeah. And that trend is continuing. Obviously, there are some areas where the market is softening. DNO, for example. Cyber may be coming off uh, a bit. Property Cat is continuing to be a really challenging market. But the interesting evolution is the reinsurance market hardened quite profoundly at the 1st of January, and 60% of the world's reinsurance is done at the 1st of January. But that trend seems to be sort of continuing as we go through the year, and the 1st of June is going to be a really interesting reference point when you see the renewals of particularly some of the sort of Florida programs. And our view and perspective on this is there isn't any material capital coming into the industry right now in the reinsurance space. Insurance companies and Lloyd syndicates are having to retain more risk at higher prices, and the risks that they're retaining, also the limits are down. And there's an obvious recognition that this is going to get passed on to the customers at the front end. And we're seeing now really significant opportunities coming through where that sort of trend is happening. In our property and marine divisions here in Q1, our opportunity count was up 46%, which I think is reflective of the challenging market environment. And I think it's going to continue to be challenging for the next few years. Some insurers are quite good at being ahead of the curve, knowing that reinsurance is probably going to harden. They could have known that probably this time last year. But some, they tend to react only after the renewals come through and say, right, oh, that's our reinsurance price. Now we have to pass it on. So presumably you're expecting the tailwind to continue. Yes, we are. 
And again, it just underlines the importance of really trying to be ahead of the curve, trying to understand what is happening in a fast-evolving marketplace, and then being on the front foot with clients and prospects to advise them as to how to structure their insurance and or reinsurance requirements. And as a nimble broker that's set up in the way that you are, where you know your insurance people are pretty connected to your insurance people in a way that perhaps other brokers, they're not. What about that access? There's a moment of need. There's a moment of requirement for more capital, more capacity. We can see this almost certainly in property cap where orders might not be fully filled. In extremists, in previous hard markets, brokers have been able to go out and access that capital and get that capital and provide it to the marketplace, obviously at the new price. I haven't seen a huge amount of that from brokers right now. Is that something you're working on to go and get that new capital that is going to be required? Well, we're looking at new capital and we certainly have some interesting projects that we're working on, which I wouldn't want to go into in this podcast. But what I would also just say is when you look at the entire value chain across specialty insurance, across reinsurance, across retrocessional capacity, which has obviously been challenged at the 1-1 renewals, across alternative capital, if you're able as a firm, as we are, to access all the different points of the value chain, you can unearth capital that corporate clients didn't know existed. And it can change the nature of the conversation and it can change the outcomes for the clients in more favorable ways. And and so I think in this market environment, it underlines the importance of being highly strategic as a broker in thinking about how to solve clients' needs and making sure you're able to comprehensively access the entire marketplace to achieve those goals. I suppose 20 years ago, we wouldn't have thought that Oh, accessing legacy, which has still got plenty of capital because it's viewed by investors in a completely different way, that accessing legacy by doing big legacy deals, of course, is freeing up new capital for the live market, which we would have thought in such a joined up way 25 years ago. Correct. And actually, that principle applies to providing legacy solutions to corporate clients, which we're quite involved in. Well, you mentioned about facts. So, you know, there was that large fact boom in 2006, 2007. Are we sort of in a similar sort of place at the moment in terms of facultative reinsurance? I think inevitably we're either in a similar place or a better place. And it's a reflection of the response of cedents to treaties that have been particularly challenged. And so having the ability to provide facultative solutions or almost hybrid solutions between fac and treaty. Yeah. The demand for that is huge, but also our treaty colleagues are really busy doing niche deals that are treaty deals that are new design, new innovations, new treaty programs that haven't existed in the past. And because of the repositioning of the reinsurance industry, it opens up opportunities across the whole spectrum. So filling in gaps that have now opened up. Yeah. You know, sideways covers, gaps. There are all sorts of interesting structures that can be developed in this marketplace working across treaty and facultative reinsurance. And it's all about just accessing slightly different pots of capital that may not be as tapped out as some of the other ones. Well, it's all about teamwork across a firm. And when you have teamwork across a firm and you can access all the different pockets of capital, you can get some really interesting results. Your 
very much an equity finance business. We don't report on you as being somebody who you know who has to go to the bank manager every quarter. We're in this increasing interest rate environment. Is that spelling a bit of a reckoning? Do you think for some of the more leverage heavy acquisition vehicles that we've seen in the in the intermediary space? You'd have to ask the more leveraged firms that question, Mark. But obviously, as the environment changes and interest rates go up and debt becomes more expensive, capital structures of firms become more important. And is the second or third outcome of that going to be realignments of businesses? Is it going to open up M&A activity? Is it going to open up purchases by strategic buyers in our industry. I think all of that is up for grabs. What I would say is I think there's going to be, over the next two or three years, a significant amount of structural change in the industry. I think there's going to be significant level of high-profile M&A that's going to come back into the industry. There's a lot of what I'd call white space in terms of opportunity for good quality firms out there. And I think that the insurance and reinsurance broking industry is viewed as an interesting place for capital providers and financial sponsors. This industry is navigated through COVID, through the financial crisis. If you go back 20 or 30 years, it's been an incredibly resilient industry through everything. And I think it will continue to be. Yes, we're we're talking an era of bank collapses. seem to be grateful that insurance companies rarely collapse in such spectacular fashion or that you can't have a run on an insurance company in the same way as you can on a bank. What's interesting what you're saying about that M&A, obviously the M&A that we've had in this low interest rate environment, this has been so extensive, obviously, which has extended since the financial crisis of 15 years ago. It's been probably the longest period of low interest rates we've ever known in any of our lifetimes. M&A was from a position of relative strength, or at least to say the other people would pay 12 times, I'll pay 13 times, and there was 14 times, now it's 17 times, that was 18 times EBITDA or whatever it is. And I'll take a slightly different view about how you define the EBITDA. Do you think some of that m and activity that you're predicting in this space will be more from a position of relative weakness, that sometimes you get M&A because you have what an analyst once described me as huddling together for warmth, as they used to say, rather than here, I'm going to be the all-conquering do you think some of that merger activity might be more because one-on-one might make 1.8, but also make the bank manager more happy? Some of it might be from a position of weakness. I think some of it will be from a position of strength. It'll be decided by the dynamics of those businesses that are looking at what they want to do and how they want to do it. I mean, you shouldn't forget that in the United States, it's still a very fragmented market. There are 36,000 insurance brokers and agents in the United States with $110 billion of revenue attributed to those firms. m and is going to continue at every single level. And I think the biggest firms in our industry are going to continue to pursue m and and they're going to do it at scale. And I think we will sit there in amazement at what is going to happen next. And from the standpoint of McGillan Partners, we'll sit there and we'll say, fantastic. This has just happened. Good luck to them. And we're going to go and continue to accelerate our growth and progress and pursue our talent acquisition strategy, which is continuing to serve us so well. It's always going to work for you because it's always going to give you new opportunities to hire people. It's a constantly evolving, changing market. And that's what makes it fun to be in, frankly. It's been a fascinating three years. And as you referenced earlier, the near miss of Aon acquiring Willis Towers Watson. 
we'd have never predicted that. Would have thought it wasn't possible. Turns out it wasn't possible. But <laughs> so, yeah, but it came close. You know, well, it's certainly worth a try. <laughs> we often underestimate. You say about this, that thirty-six thousand broken number. It seems that people say, yeah, but then six thousand being taken over every year, and therefore we're going to run out in six years. It never seems to be quite the case, does it? Do we always underestimate the number of small organic brokers out there that are just below the radar and are difficult to measure? Is that just a fact that we're always predicting the end of consolidation at some point? And but actually we'll always be wrong because there's always be firms like yours. Yours is much more visible than many other two or three partner firms. When you look at the number of firms out there, seven years ago in the US, it was 42,000 and now it's 36,000. And so what that tells you is that there's a lot of runway to go, but also firms are establishing themselves as very small firms as well. Yeah. So it's highly fragmented in the US. It's also still highly fragmented in the UK market as well. So I think it's going to be a continuing trend, and I think private equity is going to continue to be a very significant force in the broking world. We seem to have got down to about sort of 10 or 11 in the London wholesale space, 10 or 11 significant players or 12. It depends how you measure it, and I'm sure I would annoy someone if I started to try and name them. They will say, well, if you've forgotten about this one, you've forgotten about that one. Do you think we'll see more of that? Do you think that number could come down. It's certainly under 20 of really significant London wholesalers, whereas 50 years ago it would have been 200, and 10 years ago it probably would have been 25. Well, there are 384 Lloyds brokers today, and in 2017 there were 287. <laughs> and so the number has been growing. The opportunity for consolidation amongst Lloyds brokers is significant, I would say. And I also think you might see a trend where US broking firms start coming into London and acquiring Lloyd's brokers as well to get entry into the market. Brown and Brown did that with GRP. And there could be a growing trend there, just like there could be a trend where international retail broking firms are probably sitting there saying, how do I think about the US market. You know, firms like Howden's that have been on an incredible run looking at the US market and saying, how do I get positioned there? You know, so I think this is the point I was making about white space. There's opportunities for forward thinking, progressive, ambitious broking firms of any size to really build exciting businesses. And and this is an amazing time to be in this industry with everything that's going on, both, I'd say, on the broking side and the underwriting side. Uh, it's really interesting to hear, Stephen. I want to put your considerable brains on this. This is a bigger question. It's not really a broken question necessarily, but it's a, in the wider sense of intermediaries and the distribution of insurance, which is obviously a core function of what you're doing. This other trend that's really accelerated in the last two or three years particularly has been this emergence of this hybrid fronting carrier, MGA incubator, connector that's connecting loads of businesses, often to reinsurance capital, all sorts of vehicles have really mushroomed. And we're talking about a very large amount of premium being put on at some of these businesses in a very short amount of time. So clearly, there's a lot of untapped demand there that's being unleashed. I just wanted to have your take on what that is and what's behind it and whether it's a cyclical thing or I would certainly suppose it's probably some secular change. There's something permanent about some of this. I'd love to have your view on it because, you know, this is insurance distribution but a big change in the flow. 
it is evolving and it's evolving quite rapidly. And I would say it's one to watch over the next three to five years. And there are going to be clear winners and there are going to be clear losers. And I think the value proposition is really important of these MGAs. Specialization is probably important. It's certainly attractive when insurers are aligned with MGAs and there's a proper alignment of interest around profitable underwriting and where MGAs can source business that insurers typically can't access. And so you see examples of phenomenally successful MGAs and roll-up MGAs. I mean, Warburgs have just recently invested in K2, which yeah. is a really successful business model like that. We're proud to represent Coalition, which is the fastest growing cyber MJ in the world. But I think taking your carrier partners on the journey with you and making sure you're aligned with their interests and protecting them is really important because the flip side of this is a lot of these MGAs need capital to support them. A lot of the capital they have is 12 months duration. So their business effectively renews every 12 months. Yeah. And in a volatile market like this, if the results of the MGAs are not profitable, well, there's no view of profitability, then there's going to be a lot of casualties. And so there's structural change going on in the industry. There's an incredible value MGAs can bring, but they can also be challenged if there isn't an alignment of interest between all the parties. So it's definitely one to watch. Do you think there'll be a trend towards sourcing multi-year capacity for some of the best ones? That's what we're doing for our important clients. Our reinsurance teams have got leading expertise in this across treaty and facultative reinsurance and what we call structured solutions. And where we can, we look to build long-term capacity. What do you think some of this is down to technology. An MGA from 30 years ago was a big layer of extra bureaucracy, that extra sort of 10% on everything. And they better be experts and they better be able to source business that you couldn't source otherwise. Otherwise, why would you let them do it on your behalf? These days, the way that the technology is, that there's a lot less friction. Do you think that's something to do with it? Yes, it, technology definitely helps. It helps drive efficiency and it helps drive down cost. And it helps give the underwriters the opportunity to make a fair profit on the business. And technology is an enabler to very effectively connect broadly with distribution and with clients, especially if you're looking at SME-type clients. Yeah, and obviously, Steve, throughout your career, I've had many conversations with you being you know, a champion of technology. And we seem to be on the cusp of, finally, I mean, I've spent probably the last 30 years, either as a broker or as a journalist, expecting the market to become more fully digital. We seem to be really close this time. What do you think will happen when we finally get a big bang in insurance throughout the value chain? I'm not sure we'll get a big bang, uh, Mark. I, <laughs> lots, I think lots of smallish bangs, one after the it, other. I think it, it's evolving at a rapid pace. And, and I think the work that John Neal and the team have done in Lloyd's with the Blueprint Agenda has been phenomenal. And we're right on the cusp of seeing some real change. Literally, Last month, we invested multi-million, multi-year investment with Salesforce, and that is a part of our partnership is to now accelerate how we intend to use technology to drive further change, not only in the firm, but in the industry as a whole. And we've got some 
very exciting plans in the future on how we can use technology to be, I don't want to use the term disruptive, because I, I think that can be overblown, but to accelerate the evolution of the industry and to accelerate the way we serve and look after clients and access markets in a way that I think is going to be a win for all constituents. So is that really about ingesting a lot of that data that people have all got that they're probably not using? And that's from the client itself? I think it's about how you can efficiently bring clients of all sizes, frankly, together in ways that you've never done before because of the way you can use technology as a real enabler. And then technology just driving efficiencies, further efficiencies in the day-to-day running of our business and getting operational leverage going forward. I suppose once you've removed friction, there's no reason why something that's an SME couldn't end up, even though it's a tiny premium, you would never have seen it before. Correct. That's really interesting because you can almost have a bespoke individual deal for everybody, even if they're only $200 premium. You, You can think very differently about opportunities, about volumes of business, about access to the markets. And I think we're looking at this landscape through a very interesting lens. And we're certainly excited about the efforts that John and the team are pushing with moving to a digital world. And we're well ahead of the curve in terms of thinking about what that means for us as a firm. So one presumes that a lot of these treaties with the minimum deposit premiums are going to be something of the past, aren't they? These are very blunt instruments that renew every year, which in the digital world, things will be happening every millisecond. I think of delegated binding authorities and what the implications are for that business, which is quite a significant proportion of business that comes into London through traditional wholesale brokers. And how does that look for the future? And I actually think that is an area that could be disruptive but in a very positive way, because I think it could enhance the value proposition of Lloyd's and the London market and actually net-net generate more business opportunity coming into this market. I suppose when you can see things in real time and there's very little friction, you're not waiting for a quarterly border and all those other things, certainly when they become consigned to the scrap heap of history, then presume, yes, you could have much more dynamic business than you could have possibly imagined, whereas a bit sleepy and dusty years ago. Correct. It'd be crazy having you on the podcast without talking about talent. Presumably now you're in more mature phase of your development. You must be thinking about nurturing and getting your own talent in rather than, dare I say, attracting talent from other places. Is that becoming more of your plan now, you know, as as you mature? Again, are you much more about getting in your own talent rather than about taking other people's? What, What do you mean your own talent? You know, graduates, apprentices, oh, yes, that kind of thing. So, as you'll focus much more on that these days than it would have been, obviously, at your inception, it was unlikely to be a big part of what you were doing. We've got a terrific apprentice program that we've been running for two and a half years, and that's been bringing in some really great talent. In terms of continuing to build the careers of our colleagues, that is an absolute priority within the firm. And it's exciting because as we grow and expand pretty dramatically, it opens up lots of opportunities for our colleagues. And I take a lot of pleasure in seeing colleagues grow and prosper in a firm like ours and then seeing their career opportunities open up. On the one hand, there's making sure we do all of that and continue to drive our 
diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda, which is a key part of our values and approach, and we're making good progress on that. In addition, though, we just see a pipeline of talent acquisition opportunities ahead of us that are exciting, not just here in London, but also in Dublin and in the US in particular. And where we see high quality talent that's going to really add to our business, there's no budget for that. It's unlimited. We're just going to bring in talent that help us continue to drive our business forward. And that's the plan. Having gone through the last three years, it was really building the core, building the infrastructure, building the business, driving the revenue. Now, in our second three years phase, We've got much more established. I think we're a core part of the industry. Every day, client opportunities are coming through the door in ways that I'm really proud to see. And I think we've got a highly motivated workforce, and we're going to encourage our team to continue to grow internally, and we're going to continue to drive accelerated talent acquisition growth over the next three years. So if anything, it sounds like you want to accelerate from now on because you've already built the infrastructure and all that other stuff, and now you can put your foot down. Everything we're doing is with disciplined focus and really being thoughtful. When we look to bring in talent into the firm, there's a lot of due diligence that's done. It's our version of M&A, and so it's important to make sure that you do your best to bring in best-in-class talent that fits the culture, that can add to the capabilities of the firm. And so the process for bringing someone in is pretty rigorous. On average, certainly senior people are interviewed by five to 10 colleagues. And we take our time and make, hopefully, the right judgments. We're the only firm of its type in the industry right now that is building a global business in this manner. And, and as I said a little earlier, Mark, it's amazing to see that this talent acquisition approach enabled us to build a business, navigate through a global pandemic, and come out the other end with significant momentum that we're all excited about. Well, if you've been through your 10th interview, then you can definitely say that you're qualified and you're absolutely committed to the firm at that stage. If you've been interviewed by 10 different people, then yeah, you must be committed. I think the important thing of that, Mark, is we want a colleague for us to do due diligence on them and for them to do due diligence on us. So hopefully by being as thorough as you can be, you hopefully make it the right environment for both parties. It's important. Well, that's interesting for you to mention, of course, it's the candidate. I always found it strange when people didn't really take the opportunity for the candidate to get to know your business better and for you to also resell that opportunity to them. I always thought it's not just a one-way thing, is it? No, not at all. If you start off by opening an interview and saying, tell me about McGill and Partners, and they don't really have a credible answer or they haven't done any research, then it's indicative of maybe how complacent they are about the interview and the process. Yeah, absolutely. It was easier interviewing for journalists because you perfectly should be able to ask them those questions because you would expect them to be investive and curious types. Otherwise, if they hadn't checked out your own website, then that was really a very poor sign. <laughs> Steve, thank you so much. I think I've come to the end of all my questions. I've had a really good conversation and good luck with the next three years. And let's make sure we check in for an update before then. Thank you, Mark. It's great to see you. And it's nice to see you in person after 
I know we, we haven't years. been able to do this, which is which is crazy. It's messy with so many more wires and plugs and things, but it's far better the outcome. Thanks very much. Right. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>